know, one of the saddest books that I think I've ever read was written by the well-known Canadian journalist and agnostic Charles Templeton. The book is called Farewell to God. It chronicles Templeton's journey from his conversion experience in the 1930s to his evangelistic ministry with Billy Graham and Youth for Christ in the 1940s to his eventual departure from the Christian faith in the 1950s. According to Templeton, doubts about Christianity and the Bible began to plague him from early on in his ministry. Eventually, they grew to the point where he felt he could no longer preach or step into the pulpit with integrity. But in an interview with Lee Strobel that was given shortly before he died of Alzheimer's disease, Templeton identified one factor that did more than anything else to erode his faith in God. The grim reality of evil and suffering in the world. Several chapters in Templeton's book are dedicated to the problem of evil, and in this interview with Lee Strobel, Templeton claimed that a photograph in Life magazine was the tipping point between faith in God and unbelief. It was a picture of a woman in Africa who was holding her dead child in her arms, looking up to heaven with the most forlorn expression. I looked at it, Templeton said, and I thought, Is it possible to believe that there is a loving or caring Creator when all this woman needed was rain? How could a loving God do that to this woman? Who runs the rain? I don't. You don't. God does. Or at least that's what I thought. But when I saw that photograph, I immediately knew it is not possible for this to happen and for there to be a loving God. There is no way. Who else but a fiend could destroy a baby and virtually kill its mother with agony when all that was needed was rain? That was a climactic moment, he said. And then I began to think further about the world being the creation of God. I started considering the plagues that sweep across parts of the planet and indiscriminately kill, more often than not painfully, all kinds of people, the ordinary, the decent, and the rotten. And it became crystal clear to me It is not possible for an intelligent person to believe that there is a deity who loves. So said Charles Templeton, the former pastor, Christian evangelist, and colleague of Billy Graham. Over the next couple of months, we are going to be leaving our studies in the New Testament to investigate a question that has troubled many people over the millennia. A question that I know has touched many people sitting right here in this room. The question of how a sovereign God of love and grace and compassion can coexist with the stark, often brutal reality of innocent suffering, gratuitous evil that we see displayed every day on the news, perhaps that we've experienced to one degree or another in our own lives. There are a number of different biblical passages that touch on the subject of evil and suffering in the world, but the book that we're going to be considering in the coming weeks is the most extended and the most pointed treatment of unjust suffering we find anywhere in Holy Scripture. Although this is not a book that is going to answer all of our questions about the problem of evil, it is a book that will be of immense help for us when we face those difficult seasons of life, when suffering and pain come into our lives like a flood. Those times when God seems distant, when heaven seems silent, when life doesn't make sense. Those times when it seems that God has disappeared and abandoned us. Those times when we are tempted to curse God as Charles Templeton did, rather than to bless God and worship Him in the middle of our suffering and pain. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 1. 
Job chapter 1. In order to make it easier for you to follow the narrative as I read it, I'm going to be using the blue NIV Bible that you can find in the pew in front of you. You'll find Job 1 on page 359 of the Blue Bible. Page 359. Listen to the Word of God as I read it. In the land of Uz, there there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. He had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. His sons used to take turn holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the works of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. He will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then. Everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants. I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert. It struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them. They're all dead. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On a second day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? 
There is no one on earth like Him. He is a blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And He still maintains His integrity, though you incited me against Him to ruin Him without reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones. He will surely curse you to to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and he scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God, not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. This is the Word of the Lord. The passage that we just read is known as the prologue, the introductory section to the book of Job. As we dig into the beginning portion of the narrative this morning, we are going to see, first of all, a description of Job's character. Secondly, a description of Job's calamity. Thirdly, the difficult choice that Job is confronted with as a result, whether to curse God in the midst of his suffering or to bless Him. We begin then in verses 1-5 to with an introduction to this man named Job and a description of his character. The first thing that we must understand about Job and the book that bears his name, this is potentially the oldest book that we have in the Bible. Numerous clues are scattered throughout this book that Job lived during the time of Abraham and the patriarchs sometime in the second millennium B.C. In other words, this is a book describing events that happened over 4,000 years ago. And it shows us just how long people have been struggling with these questions about evil and suffering. These are not new questions that we bring to the table. Times change. Cultures come and go. Some things don't really change that much. And even though you and I are separated from Job and his friends by over 4,000 years, a culture radically different from our own, I imagine every one of us in this auditorium felt a surge of sympathy for Job as I read that narrative. Sympathy for a man who lost everything. Everything he owned. Everything he held dear. His beloved children. His health. His dignity. Let's not make this mistake of concluding like so many do that just because the Bible is a very ancient book that it's an irrelevant book that's no longer useful for modern society. No, friends, the Bible is more up-to-date. It is more relevant than any psychology textbook you can buy, than any self-help manual that you can possibly buy. There is not a person in this room today that cannot relate in some way to Job and his plight, whether personally in our own lives or perhaps through the experience of a friend or a relative who has walked through a season of profound suffering and loss. Understand here at the outset of our study, Job is a book we can all relate to in one way or another because the problem of evil and suffering in the world is as old as the Garden of Eden. This is an ancient problem. Second thing we should know about this man Job is is that he was a Gentile from the land of Uz. Long before Israel was founded as a nation during the time of Moses and the Exodus, God had a people scattered throughout the world who knew Him and who worshipped Him and who loved Him. 
Job happened to be one of those people. He was a member of the household of God. He was a man who we will one day meet in heaven. But when it comes to figuring out the exact location of Job's homeland of us, modern scholars are uncertain. Small handful of geographical references scattered in the book suggest that Job may have lived on the far side of the Jordan River, southeast of modern-day Israel. In the Bible, this territory is sometimes called the Land of Edom. It was populated for centuries by descendants of Esau, Jacob's twin brother. And so I think it's quite possible, although not altogether certain, that Job was a descendant of Esau, that this family lineage through Abraham and Isaac and then Esau is how he learned to worship Yahweh, the one true God and the creator of all things. Third thing we notice about Job is the fact that he was an incredibly wealthy man. Job lived at a time when wealth was not calculated in dollars and cents, but in how much livestock you own. And in Job's case, it was a lot. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, a large number of servants. That's not to mention the fact that Job had been blessed with a large family, many sons to help him run the family business. He was, as verse 3 says, the greatest man in all the East. But by far the most important piece of information we see here about Job is that he was an immensely godly man. A man who is renowned in the East not only for his tremendous wealth, but for his character and his unwavering devotion to Yahweh. In verse 1, the narrator informs us Job was a blameless and upright man. A man who feared God. A man who shunned evil. And just so we don't miss the point, we find that same refrain repeated twice more in the text from the mouth of God Himself. Once here in verse 8 of chapter 1, a second time in verse 3 of chapter 2. This is by far the most important thing we need to know about Job. It's essential to the overarching problem presented to us in the book. A righteous man who has honored God with his wealth and possessions, but yet a man who suffers unimaginable affliction, the text says, from the hand of God. This is the ultimate story of bad things happening to good people. What philosophers sometimes refer to as innocent suffering. Now, of course, to say that Job was a blameless and upright man is not to say that Job was a sinless man. I hope that we as Christians can all understand that this morning. There is only one sinless man who has ever walked on planet earth. His name is Jesus Christ. Job was not a sinless man, but make no mistake about it, Job was a righteous man. He was a man whose heart had been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He had been enabled by grace to do what was pleasing in the sight of God, just as you and I, Christian brothers and sisters, have been enabled by God's grace to do good works, to live holy lives that are truly pleasing and honoring to God. Job was such a man. In fact, he's presented to us as the paradigm for holiness. Someone whose life was marked by holiness and righteousness. A deep reverence for God. Now this reverence for God, this profound concern for holiness comes to the surface in verses 4-5 to where we're told that Job functioned as a priest within his family, offering sacrifices and prayers on behalf of his children just in case they had somehow sinned and offended God. The coming of Jesus Christ in the New Covenant, this type of priestly service is no longer needed. But here is a man who is profoundly sensitive to sin, a man who is deeply concerned with holiness and righteousness in his family. I have a notion, friends, that Job would put many of us Christians to shame in terms of personal holiness in spite of the fact 
that we now live in the new covenant and have the tremendous advantage of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Let me say here at the outset of our study in Job, if you do not grasp the righteous, blameless character of this man, you're going to miss the point of the book. The narrator is stressing the righteousness of Job in the opening verses because he wants us to see unjust suffering in the world is a real thing. It is not something that exists only in our imagination. Although it's absolutely true that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it's also true that the suffering a person experiences in this life does not correspond proportionally with the amount of sin the person has committed or the amount of righteousness the person has demonstrated. Author of the book of Ecclesiastes makes this point. Chapter 8, verse 14 of that book where he says, there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous get what the wicked deserve. The wicked get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. Let's not get too pious this morning, friends, and pretend this observation isn't true because the fact is we've either seen it or experienced it in some way. A godly person who struggles and dies with a horrific illness and an evil person who lives a healthy life and dies peacefully in his bed. A godly person who loses his job for being too honest. An ungodly person who gets a promotion for being corrupt and opportunistic. A godly person who is unjustly in prison. An ungodly person who lives his whole life in freedom and luxury. We could go on and on this morning with similar scenarios. This is the problem that we're confronted with in the book of Job. It will do us no good at all to try and wave the issue away by saying that the person who suffers somehow had it come into them because of their sin or else to conclude as some false religions do that all evil and suffering in the world is an illusion. We learned about this in Christian Foundations this morning. The false religion of Buddhism, the Western cult known as Christian Science, both try to convince their followers of a ridiculous piece of nonsense. Evil and suffering is an illusion that does not exist outside of your mind. But for those of you like me who live in the real world, we know that it does. The author of Ecclesiastes is absolutely right. The righteous sometimes get what the wicked deserve. The wicked sometimes get what the righteous deserve. It confronts us with a real dilemma. If you haven't yet been confronted with that dilemma personally, strap yourself in, Christian. Sooner or later, you're going to endure some form of suffering. It will seem totally undeserved. It will seem totally unfair. The point is this. Innocent suffering is a real thing. Followers of Jesus Christ are not immune to suffering. And because suffering and pain are unavoidable facts of life on earth, it is absolutely critical, brothers and sisters, that we all develop biblical convictions about the relationship between God's sovereignty and our suffering before the storms of life roll in and we find ourselves like Charles Templeton drowning in a sea of doubt and despair. Either questioning in our hearts whether God is truly in control of the world or else questioning in our hearts whether God is truly a God of grace and goodness and love. The experience of suffering in your life will do one of two things. It will either strangle your faith or it will strengthen your faith. It will either cause you to curse God in anger and bitterness or else it will cause you to bless God and worship Him and come to know Him more. And I'm absolutely convinced this morning 
If we as Christian men and women are going to bless God in the middle of life storms, we must have deep-rooted convictions about who He is. A sovereign God who controls all things, but also a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The narrator's goal in the opening five verses of Job is to introduce us to this remarkable man to establish that he was indeed a righteous man who loved God, who lived a holy life that was pleasing to God. Very quickly, however, in the narrative, we move from this encouraging description of Job's character to a rather devastating description of Job's calamity. Verse 6 of our text, the scene suddenly changes from earth to heaven As the curtain is pulled back by the narrator, narrator, we the readers get a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the very throne room of Almighty God. Heavenly scene here in verses 6-12, to again in chapter 2, verses 1-6, to portray God as the King of the universe who is holding court with all of His angels, or as the Hebrew literally says, the sons of God. And among these myriads of angels who've gathered together to worship God, to present themselves before God, is one angel in particular who is identified as Satan in the NIV, more literally, the Satan in the original Hebrew. We often think of Satan as a personal name for the devil. In reality, it's more of a title that describes what the devil does. You see, in the Hebrew language, Satan is a word that means the accuser. It means the adversary. And here in the prologue of Job, the word Satan is not used as a proper name, but as a descriptive title for this fallen angel we know as the devil. The Bible does not indulge us with many details about Satan's fall. We do know that Satan was once a beautiful, powerful angel who succumbed to the sin of pride. And in his desire to usurp the authority and the glory of God, he led a rebellion against him. In his fallen state, Satan became a great opponent of the human race, showing up in the Garden of Eden with lying and deceitful words. His ultimate goal is to kill and destroy anything, anyone that bears the image of God, to incite as much rebellion against God as he possibly can before God finally pulls the plug on him and judges him and casts him into the lake of fire where he belongs. The book of 1 Peter. We are warned by the Apostle to be alert against the enemy because he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. As heaven's outcast, the devil spends his days prowling around the earth. He is a restless roamer as we discover here in chapter 1, verse 8. But what's interesting about this portrait of the devil presented in Job is that even in his fallen and rebellion state, he is still accountable to the Creator. Notice in verse 6 of our text, when the angels come to present themselves before the Lord, the devil is right there among them. He is summoned to the throne room of God to give an account of his activity on the earth. This picture of Satan giving an account to God is very instructive, I think. Very important in shaping the way that we Christians think about the devil and his relationship to God and the human race. There are some very unbiblical views of Satan floating around in popular culture, even in the church, that give him far more credit than he deserves. Unfortunately, I think many Christians have embraced a skewed and unbiblical picture of the devil. Some of us have grown accustomed to thinking of Satan and God as two equal but opposite powers that are locked in some kind of cosmic battle for the hearts and minds of men. 
This was the kind of view of Satan that was embraced and promoted by many false teachers in the early church, those who came to be known as the Gnostics. It was an explanation for evil and suffering known in theology as dualism. It's a very ancient idea. If you read the Confessions of St. Augustine, an important historical and theological work, you'll discover that before St. Augustine became a Christian, he belonged to a Gnostic sect known as the Manichaeans. And this sect affirmed a dualistic battle between God and Satan. Two opposite powers locked in cosmic conflict with an uncertain outcome. Now, of course, the problem with this line of thinking is that it gives God far less credit than He deserves. And it gives Satan far more credit than he deserves. It insults our God and it puffs up Satan's ego. It minimizes and insults the sovereignty of God. It overinflates the power of Satan, sometimes to the point where we even fool ourselves into thinking that Satan is actually winning the battle against God and against his people, which he most certainly is not. There's one reason, brothers and sisters, why the book of Job is so important for us to read and study. It is a book that helps to correct very prevalent but unbiblical ways of thinking about God and the devil. The book of Job reminds us Satan is not on par with our God. In fact, Satan doesn't come anywhere near to our God. Satan is an angel. As an angel, Satan is a created being just as you and I are created beings. Now, it's absolutely true. Satan is more powerful than we humans are. He is able to inflict real harm on the human race. If we don't affirm that, we're not doing justice to the warnings we find in the New Testament. But biblically speaking, we must understand that although Satan is more powerful than us, he is utterly pathetic and puny when compared with our God. He is a lion, yes. But this lion is on a leash. He can be pulled back. He can be muzzled by our God at any time. You know, brothers and sisters, there is absolutely no reason why God couldn't send Satan to the pit of hell in this very moment if that's what He wanted to do. That is within the power and the prerogative of God to do that if He wanted. And So brothers and sisters, let us banish from our minds any residue of pagan thinking that sees Satan as the evil counterpart of God. He is not in God's league. He is God's created subject. The book of Job gives us an accurate picture of the heavenly realm, which I believe it does. We have no choice but to conclude that Satan is not only subject to God's sovereign rule, but that Satan actually gives an account to God along with all of the other angels. Well, on this particular occasion recorded in the text, we see that Satan was called to present himself before God along with the other angels, and in the process, we see that God strikes up a conversation about the righteous man named Job that we've already met. Have another look there at verse 8. Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Notice here in the text something very interesting. Perhaps something very surprising. It is not Satan who draws God's attention to Job. It is God who draws Satan's attention to Job. Now that is a remarkable observation to consider, brothers and sisters. It immediately raises the question in our minds, why would God do such a thing? Could this be an example of our God making a terrible error in judgment? Is this a foolish blunder on the part of God? I mean, did God not foresee where this conversation with the devil would lead? 
Is he playing into Satan's hands here by showing the thief where the crown jewels are kept? certainly hope your answer to those questions is a resounding no, because that line of reasoning would be a blasphemous insult to the intelligence and wisdom of God. No, friends. The fact that God initiates the conversation with Satan is meant to show us He is ultimately in control of everything that is to follow in this narrative. Yes, Satan might be the instrument that brings the suffering into Job's life, but it is God who initiates the trial that's extremely important for all of us to recognize. Now before I say one more word, please note carefully. Pastor John did not say in his sermon that God tempted Job with evil. Did I say that? I did not say that. I said that God initiated the trial that came into Job's life. And there is a big difference between those two things. I don't want you to leave here misunderstanding what I said. I don't want to get a bunch of emails this week and I don't want to be slandered. The New Testament is very clear. And hear me say this. Very clear. God is not the author of sin. God does not tempt anyone with evil. At the same time, the Bible is also crystal clear that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Ephesians 1.11 very clearly here, it is God who initiates the trial. You know, that's why the Apostle James can tell us later on in the New Testament that we are to count it all joy when we fall into trials of many kinds. Not because we Christians are sadists who enjoy the experience of suffering and pain, but because we have the biblical conviction every trial that can possibly come into our lives comes through the divine will. These trials are ultimately intended by God for our good and for His glory. That's the teaching, the theology we find in the book of James in the prologue of Job. To be quite frank with you, I don't know any other way to explain these texts apart from the fundamental conviction that God is sovereign over all things up to and including the devil himself. It is God who ordains trials and sufferings to come into our lives because God has a greater purpose in mind. Because God is going to use those trials. He's going to use those struggles. He's going to use that pain to cause us to grow in some way. Johnny Erickson Tata, a name that will be familiar to some of you. She's a Christian leader who as a young woman became paralyzed from the neck down from a tragic spinal cord injury. Put it this way, in a 2010 interview with Christianity Today shortly after she'd been diagnosed with breast cancer. Whether hardship is brought by our own negligence or through the direct assault of the hand of a wicked person or our own ignorance and misinformed decisions or our lack of awareness or misdoings or some catastrophe of nature, these things all fall under the purview of God's overarching decree. A look at the New Testament shows us that God's sovereignty extends over all these things. God permits all sorts of things that He does not approve of. He does not approve of my spinal cord injury or my cancer. But in His sovereign decree, He has allowed them. Now listen to what she says at the end. I don't really care if you use the word permit, allow, or ordain. It is all the same thing. Ultimately, it goes back to God being in charge and I don't think there is a real difference. Brothers and sisters, I don't think I can say it any better than Johnny Erickson Tata. It is God who ordains the trials that come into our lives. But notice in the text, it is Satan that issues the challenge to God. Verses 9-11. to 
Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You bless the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand, strike everything he has. He will surely curse you to, to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. First glance, we may be tempted to conclude from this verbal exchange that Satan wants to put Job on trial to determine whether Job is truly a righteous man. If that's the conclusion that we draw from these words, we're missing the point. You see, the real intent behind Satan's challenge is far more insidious than that. Satan is not so concerned to put Job on trial as he is eager to put God on trial. At issue here is not whether Job is a righteous man or not, but why Job is a righteous man. The adversary, the accuser, is calling Job's motives into question along with the motives of every other righteous person who honors God with their life. Does Job truly love God? Or does Job love the gifts that God can give? That's the challenge. That's the question. Put it another way. Is God truly worthy to be worshipped and praised for who He is? Or is God worthy to be worshipped and praised because He will give us all of the stuff that we want? On a superficial level, the book of Job appears to be about Satan's testing of one man. In reality, this book is about Satan's testing of Almighty God. Whether God is intrinsically worthy to be worshipped and treasured by His people. And when we see the message of the book of Job in that light, we begin to realize the stakes are higher than we originally thought because it is not Job's integrity on the line here. It's God's integrity. It is God's honor that's on the line. That is why God allows Satan to unleash all of his fury on Job. God is going to defend his own glory and honor against the slanderous lies of the enemy. And Job is going to play a vital role in putting the enemy to silence. That is the big picture of what is going on behind the scenes in heaven. That's what this book is about. Here's the really interesting thing, and don't miss it. As far as we know, this man Job never got to listen in on the heavenly conversation. Have you ever thought about that before? You and I as the readers of this book get to peek behind the curtain, but Job did not. And from the heavenly perspective, it becomes clear to the reader Job's suffering has a definite purpose in God's big plan, but from Job's earthly perspective, the suffering seemed totally mysterious, totally arbitrary. And this, brothers and sisters, is how it is with so much of the suffering and so much of the pain we experience in this fallen, broken world that is cursed with sin. From our limited vantage point on planet earth, pain and suffering usually seem meaningless and arbitrary, but from God's vantage point, there is always a purpose, always a plan for our suffering. If you understand that, you are well on your way to dealing and answering the problem of evil. You know, whenever you and I suffer here on earth in ways that don't make sense, all of those nagging why questions start to pour into our minds. The why questions start to come out of our mouths. The truth is, we don't get to see the big picture. We don't get to peek behind the curtain. We don't know what God knows. We don't see what God sees. And so our suffering seems mysterious. Now I believe that from the perspective of eternity, 
All of our earthly afflictions will make sense. But in the short term, the responsibility we have as Christians is to walk by faith. Believing that God is completely sovereign. Believing that God is unwaveringly good. Believing that God is always in control. Yesterday morning, we held a memorial service here at the church for Bruce Moat, our brother in Christ who recently died of ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. If you know anything about that disease at all, you will know it is a diagnosis that could have easily pushed our brother Bruce into a dark spiral of depression and despair as it has done to so many others. But by God's grace and for God's glory, we know that's not what happened to Bruce. Instead of cursing God for this horrible illness he was called to face, Bruce instead wrote these words in the front cover of his Bible and I shared them with the congregation yesterday. This is remarkable. This is what Bruce wrote in his Bible. I must accept God's view of my circumstances and rest in His love and power to see me through. I must accept God's view of my circumstances and rest in His love and power to see me through. And may I suggest to you this morning, this is the way a Christian man or woman can face any daunting trial in life, whether it be ALS or cancer, infidelity, divorce, job loss, poverty, the death of a child, anything. Now, I imagine that our brother Bruce had a lot of why questions about his illness. In the end, he didn't demand an answer from God. He didn't need one. Bruce understood in his great hour of trial what we need to understand in our trials. I must accept God's view of my circumstances and rest in His love and power to see me through. This great calamity that Job endured unfolded in two distinct phases. In the first phase, God permits Satan to remove all of Job's earthly material blessing. In the second stage, God permits him to take away his health and his dignity. Although material wealth and prosperity is usually an effective way to turn a person's heart away from God, wealth and material prosperity did not become an idol for this man Job. Job was one of those rare individuals who had learned to honor God with his financial means and not to turn material blessings into a God substitute. And so Satan, realizing that he could not get to Job through material wealth, instead decided that maybe poverty, maybe heartbreak would do the trick. And so we read in verses 13 to 19 about all the calamities, all the tragedies that suddenly rushed upon Job and his family like a flood. First of all, God permitted Job's beloved children to be killed by a murderous group of Sabaean raiders. The worst nightmare of any parents to lose a child, something I cannot even imagine enduring. Second stage of Job's affliction comes through natural disaster, lightning, a fire of some kind that burned up a large portion of his flocks and killed many of his servants. After this, another group of raiders from the east stole Job's camels and murdered the rest of his servants. Finally, a tornado swept in from the desert, demolishing the house where his remaining children were staying, killing all of them in an instant. This is unimaginable tragedy! This is a calamity that would drive many people in our world to suicide. Not Job. And if anyone on planet earth had a right to get angry at God and to curse Him and to shake His fist at Him, it was Job. But instead of cursing God, instead of shaking His fist at the heavens, He instead blesses God. He worships God as the One who gives and the One who takes away. This leads us then thirdly and finally to Job's choice. 
His choice to worship God in the midst of suffering and pain and not to curse God because of His suffering. What is it that Job says there in verse 21 in response to this unbelievable catastrophe? The Lord gave and Satan has taken away? Is that what Job said? The Lord gave and fate has taken away? Is that what he said? The Lord gave but chance has taken away. Is that what he said? No, that's not what he said. This is what he said. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What an amazing expression of faith and worship and trust. Here is a man who sees the sovereignty of God as a reason to bow down in reverent worship and not as an easy excuse to blaspheme and curse the name of God. I hope the next time that we sing that Matt Redmond song, Blessed Be Your Name, we will remember this chapter. We will remember this sermon. We will reflect carefully about what it is that we are singing. The circumstances under which those remarkable words of praise were first uttered by this righteous worshiper named Job. You give and you take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be Your name. Before we move on from this, let's notice something crucially important. A recognition of God's sovereign hand in the midst of our suffering does not mean that we cannot cry out and mourn and grieve when the wind is knocked out of our lungs and the pain cuts us to the very core of our being. Yes, Job bowed down in humble worship before God. That's not all that Job did. Look at verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell down to the ground and worship. Do you realize, Christian, it is possible for grief and worship to go together? Do you know, Christian, it is possible to worship God even as your heart is filled with tremendous pain? I hope you do. It's critically important that you do. Trust in a sovereign God who works all things according to the counsel of His will should never be confused with some kind of cold, stoic, emotionless fatalism. We are created in the image and likeness of a personal, relational God. And if the Lord Jesus could weep openly at the tomb of His friend Lazarus, we also can weep tears of grief and sorrow even as we are bowing in worship before the sovereign God. Well, at this point, we might hope that Satan is done with Job. Hasn't he faced enough? We get to chapter 2. We see yet another request from the relentless adversary to assault Job. Only this time the issue is not about his family and possessions. It is about his health and his dignity. Once again in chapter 2, the conversation is initiated by God. In verse 3, the response from Satan comes very quickly in the following verse. Skin for skin, Satan replied. What a smug guy Satan is. Skin for skin, God. A man will give all that he has for his own life, but stretch out your hands, strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. 
Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself as he sat among the ashes. I'm no doctor. I have no idea what kind of disease came upon Job in response to Satan's request, but let me tell you this morning, friends, this is no minor case of the chicken pox. Whatever came upon Job was a horrific, debilitating illness, and this during a period of time when you could not go get a prescription, run down to the pharmacy and get some Advil and antibiotics. This is a horrifying illness. It's repulsive. Job has been banished from his home. Job has been banished from his community. He is now sitting outside of the city gates in the city dump on the ash heap where the garbage is burned. Just think of it. The greatest, the wealthiest man in all of the East has been thrown away like a worthless piece of garbage and he spends his days like a penniless beggar in the dump, itching himself, scraping the infection off of his body with a broken shard of pottery. Surely now Satan will win. Surely Job has reached the breaking point. Surely now the cursing and the bitterness will start to flow from his mouth. I mean, even his wife has given up on him. Verse 9. You still holding on to your integrity, Job? Curse God and die. Can you imagine your wife telling you that? Or your husband? Who needs enemies when you've got friends like that? And Job replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Remarkable. We've only scratched the surface of this book this morning. And as we make our way through the remainder of these inspired chapters in weeks to come, we are going to see that Job's initial victory over the enemy here in the prologue will give way to moments of defeat and discouragement. Job's faith is going to wax and wane as the trial drags on, and although he never once doubts or questions the sovereignty of God, there will be moments in the book when Job begins to question the goodness of God. We're going to deal with that one in the weeks to come. But right now, at this point in the narrative, we rejoice in the fact that Job's suffering has accomplished a resounding victory over Satan. A prefiguring, I believe, of what Jesus' victory on the cross would accomplish once and for all. The enemy's challenge to God has been proven false. The integrity of God has been vindicated. He is a God worthy to be worshipped for who He is and not merely for what He can give us. And as we close now, and consider the defeat of Satan through the righteous worship of this man Job, I leave you with these encouraging and stirring words from the great Martin Luther, a man who knew what it was to square off against the devil. This is what Luther said, And though this world with demons filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Amen.